Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. So it's a big day for me when I discover a, a local author who's been nationally published through a, a major publisher that I didn't know about before. Um, mainly, of course, I, I know all the details, but every so often I get caught by surprise. And, and in this particular case, uh, the reason that I hadn't heard of this fabulous author is because she's writing YA, and the YA people don't necessarily go through the same channels. It's a, a mainstream publishing thing rather than uh, a genre one, and the, uh, the science fiction gets lumped in with everything else. So yeah, you have a surprise occasionally. Um, but I, I happen to be at a, a feminist event in the, the watershed recently, and I bumped into Virginia and discovered that she had a, a book coming out very, very shortly. Now, there's, there's been a lot of noise in the internet recently about um, things. Uh, it, it, it's all kind of tied in with Virginia's book. Um, she, she's actually been publicised quite widely. I was very impressed that uh, all the matches of the Women's Cricket World Cup have been advertising your book. Be- because they, they have this slogan which says, who runs the world? <laughs> which is also the title of Virginia's book. And the, the answer to that is, of course, the secret feminist cabal. <laughs> we, um, we had, one, we had one heck of, heck of a party at the secret volcano there last night. <laughs> lots and lots of bathing in men's tears. <laughs> Gallons of Prosecco consumed. <laughs> all getting massages from our unit slaves. And all sort of <laughs> Um, but yes, no, uh, Who Runs the World is the latest book by Virginia Bergman, and it is all about a world in which men have apparently become extinct. So, to tell us more about that, here's Virginia. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, I'm a little bit nervous, but I have a very sophisticated technique for dealing with nerves, which is to just ignore them and hope that they go away. I've also got a very sophisticated technique for dealing with my tendency to waffle. So this is the anti-waffle device. Make sure I keep looking at it or we're in big trouble. I'm so happy to be here um, this evening. I'm absolutely delighted. Thank you so much to Cheryl for, for inviting me. I'm so happy because I've managed to live in Bristol for uh, 17 years and not realised that there was a science fiction community here. I'm not great at kind of getting out of the house much. Um, And I just wanted to start, um, I'm doing a slightly different thing, I'm going to read to you a little bit but also I wanted to talk to you a little bit and the very first thing I wanted to do was to give just a little bit of... um, information about me but that's also a pet talk for um, because I thought there are going to be writers in this room and they're going to be writers who like me um, uh, up until three years ago uh, unpublished um, so what I want to say about me is that I come from um, quite poor background quite working class background um, I grew up in a council house I still live on a council estate 
and I went to a very bad, it was so bad back then, a comprehensive school. It's a lot better now. I mustn't go around with this again. And, um, but really, trust me, it was awful back then. And between school and home, the message that I got from the world was that people like me don't become writers. Not even in an unkind way, it's just how things were. But I tell you, I got that message loud and clear, and I think it got right into my heart and definitely right into my head. And although I carried on writing and carried on writing, um, I, kind of, I couldn't ever really see a way to become a writer. It was completely alien to the world that I grew up in. I had no clue um, how, how people became authors and so on. Um, and though I carried on writing and carried on loving writing, I think really in my heart, I thought this is mission impossible and it's never going to happen. Um, so let me tell you, people like me do become writers. <laughs> um, this is, it finally happened three years ago when I was 48. I don't think it should take anybody that long, so I'm here to big up anyone who's not published. Just get on with it, it can happen. Um, this is my first book, so um, uh, uh, yeah, it was amazing. Um, it got bought by Macmillan after an auction and um, it's been translated, it has been, or it's been translated into about five languages and the Americans bought it. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> We're exporting dystopian fiction to, to the US, it's amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, so this is um, The Rain, it's the first book, and then there's a sequel to that, which is The Storm. And if you ever get the chance to read them, the basic story is what happens when um, a killer bacterium from outer space infects the whole of the world's water system. Um, all our rivers, seas, everything. You can't eat fresh food, food anymore. Uh, drink, you can't, certainly can't drink water. Or beer, I'd have thought. <laughs> um, I know it's a global, it is a global tragedy. Um, and although, very briefly, I just want to say, and although these look like you know pretty scary, full-on horror kind of stories, that they um, there's loads of comedy in them, and they're all told to you by a very ordinary British teenage girl who is quite funny, I think. Anyway, I'm not here to talk about those today. I'm here to talk about this. Um, so this is who runs the world, and. I was asked by Macmillan to come up with an idea for, for a new story, and so help me. <laughs> I thought, I know. Um, I, I came up with this idea. Before I talk about it at all, I want to say that if you are someone who is seriously questioning very binary notions of gender, so very woman, man, girl, boy stuff, so am I, um, uh, very much so. And but the thing I found, it's nearly impossible to talk about this story without using very binary terms, so just bear with me a sec. Yeah, who runs the world? <laughs> it's uh, quite a time to be asking that question. It does seem like a lot of people are asking that question. Um, and I wouldn't normally do this, but I'm just going to read to you what it says on the back jacket so you can hear the, kind of the premise of this story. So... Welcome to the matriarchy. Um, 
60 years after a virus has wiped out almost all the men on, planet, uh, on, on the planet, the female population has grieved, pulled together, and moved on. And life really is pretty good if you're a girl. It's not so great if you're a boy. But 14-year-old River wouldn't know that. Until she met Mason, she thought they were basically extinct. I'm just going to go straight into reading how this book opened. This is the prologue, um, so uh, it's written in the third person, but the whole of the rest of the story is told to you first person by, by River. It's only this intro, really, um, that's in this third person voice. She is riding through the woods on what was once a road. The dotted white line that once separated the comings from the goings is crumbling. The tarmac is slowly being destroyed by tree roots. The small plants don't wait for the trees. They are so strong. They sprout up all over, wherever they can. In another few years, there won't be any road left at all. Too bad, so sad, bye-bye. That's what her grandmama, Kate, who refuses to be called grandmama, says about all the things that once were and are no more. Too bad, so sad, bye-bye. The horse, a gentle giant of a shire horse that grandmamas called My Little Pony, Milky for short, pulls a cartload of cider apples, small, hard, bitter things that will be fermented into some fun. The girl has a rucksack stuffed with harvest produce on her back. It is easier to carry it than have to clamber off and on the huge horse just for a drink of water. Her name is River. She is 14 years old, and she is daydreaming about the exploration of outer space. It is an autumn evening. Dark is coming soon. She is miles from home. She feels no fear. Why would she? There are no predators, no such thing as ghosts. Fear belongs to another time. It lives on only in the memories of others. So she feels no fear at all. Not even when she sees it, the body lying in the middle of the road. I just skip a tiny bit because we, we don't have much time, but um, she gets off the horse to investigate this body. And uh, yeah. In the few astonished seconds she spends staring at that body, River imagines the most extraordinary thing that this is an XY, a person born genetically male. But that cannot be. It simply cannot be. Seconds of astonishment, seconds of extraordinary. Then River, who nearly always tries to do the right thing, and not just because that's what her mama would expect, does the right thing. First aid. She checks for hazards. Nothing dangerous lying about, not even a sun-basking adder. And the power lines that follow this road hang broken and long dead. So no threat of electrocution. There is only a bad stink in the air from diarrhea and vomit spattered nearby. She checks for consciousness. Wake up! 
She yells, clapping her hands. Wake up! A single puffy eyelid rises. A bloodshot eyeball rolls. A pupil pinpricks against the pretty red and gold of dappled autumn light, focuses and... The rest of the stories told to you by River, <laughs> not in that voice. <laughs> yes, the rest of the story is told to you by River, and she is right. This body in the road that is um, still alive is indeed a boy, and um, there's no way he should even be there. When the virus struck 60 years ago, the whole of the future, of, um, uh, the, the whole human race was threatened, the whole of our, our, our future was threatened, and the, so the surviving men and boys were herded into remote sanctuaries, and they have remained isolated from the outside world for the, for the past 60 years. There is an IVF program for, for anyone who's wondering. Um, but there has basically, there has been no real contact. No one knows what's been going on inside these places. They're hundreds of miles away. He shouldn't be there, and he should not be alive, because the men and boys can't leave those sanctuaries. Um, they're still trapped there. This boy, Mason, has never seen um, a girl or a woman before in his life. He has only encountered women and girls in the form of computer games and other materials. <laughs> okay, everyone's grown up. Yes, okay, so that, um, okay, so porn, he's seen porn vids. Um, and uh, River has never seen uh, a boy or a man before in her life and nor has her mama, and the only person who has is her grandmama, Kate, who was just 15 years old. She was just a teenager when, when the men and boys died. Why did I build the story this way? Um, I did it so that, it was a nightmare to write, by the way. It's a really good job. I'm only supposed to have 20 minutes or we would be here till midnight listening to me moaning on about how difficult it was. I built the story in this way so that our current notions, our what kinds of ideas we have about women and men and the way that they should be and the way that they should behave kind of still linger on in this world because the grandmama remembers them and uh, they are still taught a bit um, at, at, at school in education. There is Men's History Week um, once a year. <laughs> I had to, uh, I'll talk more about that. I had to really try to rein back in all sorts of places in, in this book because um, if I just wrote for adults, I wouldn't really care. And, but I write for teens, so I had to kind of rein back. But there are a few naughty things in there. Um, and River, so, so some ideas about how women were, but specifically about men, kind of do still exist in the world, but River has, honestly, she ain't interested. 60 years ago, it's ancient history, it's not part of her world, it's of no interest to her whatsoever, until Mason arrives in her world and 
I suppose the way that she has been living, it's essentially a gender-neutral world. She's never really given much thought to what a woman or a girl is. When she looks around her and the way she thinks, she just thinks in terms of people, and certainly um, the way that people live um, around her is incredibly diverse. People live in all sorts of ways, look all sorts of ways, behave all sorts of ways. Um, and she just thinks of everyone in her world as, as, as people. She has never had to think about, well, what is a girl? What should a girl mean? Or, and certainly, what, what is a boy? And what does a boy mean? Um, yeah. I am um, at the heart of the nightmare of this story was an issue about uh, whether this would be a utopia or a dystopia. It kind of always had to have at least a, quite a strong dystopian element because if there was no conflict here, there had to be conflict somewhere. If there's no conflict, because if there's no conflict, there's no story. <laughs> but, and the utopia option I really had to stop and question myself because I kind of, when I first came up with this idea, I thought, yeah, of course it's going to be a better world. It's going to be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then I stopped. I had to stop and think about that because my whole life, pretty much, I've been given the message, another message, that I've been given in my life is that men are somehow better than women. And if I wrote a story that said women are somehow better than men, all I would be doing is turning a lie around and repeating it. And as I say, if I just wrote for adults, I, would, I wouldn't care. I'd leave it to, to the adults to, to figure that one out. But I don't, I write for teens, and I felt like I had just had no right at all to, to um, push this onto them. It, it seemed really unjust. Um, so, yeah, instead of just turning the thing around, there are reversals in, in, the, in the story. There are things that mirror where we're at now, and there are things that, you know, a, a straightforward twist around on, on perhaps some of what we have. But mainly, I just kind of shook it up. <laughs> so there are all kinds of ideas in here that, you know, um, I felt under tremendous pressure to represent women in a positive light. And, but I think that's a really interesting thing, and it's a particularly interesting thing for, for writers of science fiction, because it occurred to me that perhaps when most writers sit down, I was going to say most male writers, but maybe women as well, and we write about a future society, and it's a patriarchy, does anyone really sit there at their desk and have a complete meltdown about how am I representing masculinity here? What am I saying about masculinity? I don't think that happens very often. If it does, I don't hear about it. But I was in a cold sweat for probably 19 months straight, trying to think, how am I representing women here? What am I saying about femininity? Um, so anyway, I'm just going to read um, some more to you. But to say that, so this is a story in which gender plays a huge role. It throws up loads of questions, shake it up. 
And, um, but it is also, for me, essentially, it's a, pretty much a political thriller. And for me, really, it's a story about democracy um, and justice and having the courage to think differently, maybe behave differently to um, the rest of society. Anyway, <laughs> no spoilers. Um, yeah, um, so I'm just going to finish by reading a, a, a tiny bit. This is a, a little way further on into the story, and um, Mason has um, regained consciousness, and he uh, he's just attacked, or tried to attack, River and her family. So River's got him. He's still very sick and weak, and River has got him pinned to the ground. Um, her mama is there, and her grandmama is there. And at this point in the story, his behavior is so alien to her. His behavior is so alien, so odd, so outrageous, so disgusting to her, that she can't even see him as a human being. I release the beast. I scramble to my feet and stand over it. I owe you my life, it says, and cranes its neck to look up at me. It tries to peel itself off the floor, but whatever strength, of, um, surge of strength it managed to dig out has left it. It passes out. Once again, I'm concerned that I might have killed it. I told you it was dangerous. I hiss at Kate and Mama over its unconscious body. Mama looks at Kate. He's not dangerous, Kate says. He's just scared. Scared? Mama asks Kate. Yes, scared. Fear makes people do all kinds of things. Trust me, I've seen it. I've seen it plenty. He's just scared. But what would he be scared of? You hurt him. He thinks he's going to get raped. He thinks he's going to get raped or killed. Wouldn't you be scared? I don't know, my mama says. I mean, yes, but I can't imagine. Well, try, shrieks Kate. Shh, I hiss, because the creature is twitching. Mama, call H&R and get it taken away. She's not going to do that, says Kate. He's dangerous. He is not. Mama. Every child is our child, Mama whispers. Global agreement, number two. Damn right, says Kate. Damn bloody right. Not if it's a boy, surely, I'm thinking. For the whole of the rest of my life, I will never forget the look it gave me, craning its neck to look at me. And I didn't even understand what it was. I didn't even understand. I think, perhaps, I, I do now. <clears throat> but it is not a look I ever want to see again on any person's face. It is not plain and simple gratitude. It is not the non-look terrified glance of a creature set free checking the hunter isn't coming after it. It's the worst thing you'll ever see in your life. A person who feels grateful just for being treated like a person.
but enough. The twist? Deep down, they know no one should have to feel grateful for that. And you know it too. The Bristol Con Fringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Con Fringe page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe.